0: take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. As we deal with the part of Ephesians that uh, you always skip over between the two famous passages. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. This is the Word of God. Starting verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And let's pray. Now, Lord, we do again ask humbly that we would see Jesus. Would you change how we think and feel and act? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't know if you've had the privilege of seeing this kind of specific drawing I'm going to talk about, but it's that kind of drawing that when you first look at it, you see one thing, but then the longer you look at it, you realize that's actually not the thing at all, and there's something very, very different happening, and then usually once you see the second thing, you can't really see the first, right? One of the, the famous ones of these, it's actually got a kind of stronger pedigree in how it's been involved in academic thinking and such, but it's a drawing of a goblet, right? And it just looks like a fancy goblet is the way it kind of opens, and then if you stare at it long enough, you begin to realize that it's actually not a drawing of a cup at all. It's two old ladies that are staring at each other almost nose to nose, and the cup isn't actually a cup at all, It's, it's just the void space in between their two faces, and it's interesting because if you just glance at it out of the corner of your eye, you're like, oh, that's a goblet. That's a, that's, it's a, a wine goblet. It's a cup. I know exactly what that is. And then the longer you look, you realize, oh, no, no, I was wrong. <laughs> that's not that at all. There's another famous one. If you've perhaps seen this one, it's the picture of a tree. And you can kind of glance at it, and you think, oh, this is this wonderfully ornate tree. Now, it's, it's in winter, and there's no leaves on it, and it's you know, kind of just stringy branches everywhere. But then as you begin to look at it, you begin to realize usually it's the trunk that you see first is an old man. And you're like, oh, that's not really a picture of a tree at all. It's, it's an old man. Now, wait a minute. That branch is a different person. Oh, wait, that branch is a different... It's actually a drawing of like nine different people that are just kind of arranged in an artistic fashion. And once you see it, it's actually not a tree at all. It's just a drawing of a bunch of people. But you look at it initially with the wrong frame of reference, and you need to kind of have your brain reoriented. It's a a fun kind of exercise and how the human brain works that we we jump to conclusions very quickly and sometimes have to have those conclusions retrained. Uh, Really, in in many ways, these nine verses that we're going to look at tonight are Paul's attempt and the Spirit of God speaking and correcting, really reorienting our brain From a quick glance at human relationships to kind of stop and reorient our minds so we think about them correctly. Right? Out of the corner of our eye, if we glance at human relationships, we'll say, oh, it looks like a cup, it looks like a goblet, but then as we begin to kind of stew upon it, it's something very, very different. Very, very different. In fact, actually, if you you think about it in our current kind of moment in time here in America, some of our more cynical folks, uh, influenced by a series of academic thoughts, largely uh, coming from Germany in the 19th century and such, uh, really say that that all relationships are a, a, a contested balance of power. Right, every human relationship is is the fancy word that's used now is 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 a power dynamic right? And any imbalance in a power dynamic results in uh, relationships that by definition are abusive. This is the language of the land in which we live. It's, It's taking human relationships and kind of reducing them down, taking the the love out of it and taking the complexity of personality out of it and taking the laughter out of it and taking kind of all the various fun and flavorful bits and pieces and reducing relationship at its core to a contest for power. Who is able to conquer the other person? This is largely how the American world kind of thinks about relationships as a whole. That's our kind of quick glance in the world in which we live currently. You go to any college campus right now, you take any course in human personality or human relationship, this is what they will spend their time talking about, the dynamics of power, which is Marxism at its core. It's interesting, though, as we come to these verses here, the Lord is actually going to say, hey, by the way, you've been looking at the goblet. You've been missing the pictures of the two old ladies. You've been missing the big point, right? You've glanced at human relationships and you said, oh, look, it's a tree. And in reality, no, that's not a tree at all. It's something very, very different. And we we need to reorient our minds to think about how relationships work. Now, interestingly, all of these relationships here in verses 1 through 9 are relationships that do focus on power dynamics, right? These are all authority-driven relationships. Parents with their children, children with their parents, slaves with their masters, masters with their slaves. They're all kind of raising questions of who's in charge and how they're in charge. And you really could think about it this time. There there probably were, if you went to the Greco-Roman version of Barnes & Noble. I don't know what that would have been, but I'm sure they existed in some fashion. You could have looked through the, the self-help section, and there would have been books on the, the seven different ways to manage your slaves more effectively. I, I'm, I mean, we, we don't have any copies of them, but I'm sure they existed. I mean, the 19 different ways to control your children better. Well, we do have copies of those books. They're just written a bit newer, I guess. All of these are kind of getting at the, like, how do these relationships work? How do these relationships work? And so it starts with, uh, really, the lesser to the greater in both cases, beginning with the person who is, uh, by our world's estimation, the one with no power. Children. And you would expect at this point any sort of answer. You could say, children, you know, figure out how to fight the man, right? you got to fight for your right to party. Resist mom and dad, right? Children band together, run mom and dad ragged. Give them gray hair, make dad go bald from stress. There are all sorts of things that you could expect in this point, right? But that's not what we get. He reorients us. Children, obey your parents. Don't fight them. Don't resist them. Don't undercut them. Don't malign them. Obey your parents. And you would think, okay, well, all right, so <sighs> Paul, Paul is just an institutionalist. He, he, he's not fighting for our right to party or whatever else it is. Instead, he's trying to maintain the status quo. He's on the side of the man, right? Except actually, he, he explains in a very significant phrase that's put in next. Obey your parents in the Lord. And in that, that brief clause, what he does is takes the parental relationship out of a contest for power out of a cultural contest, out of a mom and dad won't let me do this. So I'm going to figure out how to beat the system and game the system. To, out of, I know mom and dad are too tired. I'm just going to manipulate them into exhaustion. And takes the entire thing and kind of chucks it out the window and says, children, your relationship with mom and dad is one that is connected to and a reflection of your relationship with God Himself. Obey your parents. Don't just obey them for obedience sake. Don't just obey them because life is better. We'll get to that in a minute. But obey them in the Lord. And in fact, actually, as we look at each of these these relationships, all four of them, that's part of the kind of reorientation that Paul does, is he kind of takes our head and shakes it a little bit and lets us get it clear to say, look, all of these relationships are relationships that exist within God's commands and exist within God's glory. Your obedience to mom and dad is not simply an issue of mom and dad. It's not an issue of whether mom and dad are are good. There's no qualification here given for competent parents. It's not an endorsement of mom and dad being, you know, wiser, though in many cases they are. I I know some situations where this is not the case. I was a youth pastor long enough to run into a number of families where I'm like, ah, this is such a shame. Your 14-year-old is already wiser than the parents. I hate that. It stinks. Still got to obey. Because the obedience is not connected to mom and dad. It's connected to God himself. And okay, you would say, well, all right. I know how to beat the system, right? I know how when mom and dad make commands for me to figure out how to fulfill that command just enough. We've all had that point, I'm sure, well, maybe you haven't, I know I have, where mom and dad say, it's time to clean your room. Great, everything comes off the bed and then gets kicked under the bed or jammed into the closet. Did you fold your clothes? Of course I did. I just put all of them in the dirty hamper. I don't have to fold them if they're dirty. I mean, I just got them out of the washer and the dryer. It doesn't matter. They go back in the dirty hamper. I don't have to fold them. I hate folding laundry. I actually like folding laundry, but that's, I'm a weirdo. The interesting thing is that that's really how, kids, we work, right? We, we've done this where every, everybody knows this at some point where mom and dad give their command, and we obey to the letter of the law in such a way that, if we're going to be honest, we know it's disobedience. We know that. We know that's the reality. I remember uh, one when I was a child. I remember at one point being disciplined by my mother, and uh, she was um, rightfully upset with me. I don't remember what I had done, but I'm sure it was devious and awful, uh, and was told that I needed to go read the Bible. Okay, that's fine. That's fair, good, right? Probably, hopefully, it would change my heart. She said, you can't come downstairs until you know, you've read an entire chapter of the Bible. And I was young, I was real little. So I flip open to Psalm 117. 12 seconds later, I'm done. Right? Psalm 117 is two verses. Easy, right? I fulfilled mom and dad's command. Now, did it accomplish anything good? It probably further increased my condemnation, if we're honest, right? I did what they told me to do, but I didn't do it in my heart. I just did it with my hands. And that's really where verse 2 then kind of expands this to say, look, relationship between parents. Now, interestingly, this is not Christian parents that are being addressed here. This is not reserved for Bible believing, evangelical, confessional Presbyterian parents. This is just parents. You honor them, and this honor is different than obedience in the sense of here it's being kind of referred to as, as a heart condition. Your relationship is, with them is one where it, it's, you're not just simply trying to cut corners um, to fulfill the tiniest little and then be out. It's one of respect, and interestingly, respect that's given freely. Will the parents deserve that respect? I mean, honestly, a lot of times, no. I mean, if we're going to be candid, no. Sometimes, hopefully most of the time, but sometimes no. But we still do it, in fact, actually, with highlighting this, the first commandment of the promise, probably here referring to kind of the the significance and primacy of this commandment in relationship to how we relate to other humans. This is of utmost importance. It's a heart issue. It's not a power issue. It's not an issue of domination or rebellion. It's an issue of the heart. Children, in your heart, honor the Lord. And the way that you honor the Lord is by honoring your parents. Now, uh, there is a, a sense in which, again, if we're honest, many of us kind of go, well, I can get by with that if the commands are small and reasonable commands. But the second that really those commands get big, or unreasonable, or honestly, if you are one of those unfortunate souls that have terrible parents. And that happens. There's a real easy way to be able to go like, well, I just don't want to. I don't want to. I know that I'm supposed to. I know that it's right. I don't want to. I just don't care that much. I don't want to. And I love that this was specifically the Lord accounts for our frailty. Like, look, your relationship is one in which it's to be reflected in your heart, not just your hands, not just your mouth, reflected in your heart. And it's ultimately reflected in really love of God, but then love of God that's showcased in honor toward father and mother. But acknowledging that we're frail creatures, and the I don't want to is sometimes quite strong, I love that he attaches blessing. Yeah, by the way, so that it will go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, does that mean that every decision that every parent has ever made, if obeyed, will lead long in the land? No, no, certainly not. I've ministered with families that have had substance abuse problems and parents trying to get children to use illegal substances and things like that. Don't do that. That's bad, right? To honor the Lord. Uh, Don't sin against the Lord. But the idea here being in verse 3 that with this heart attuned to honoring authorities, specifically mom and dad, it does promote blessing in those that do it. The Lord rewards it. He honors it. It's a heart change that has reward. Children, honor your parents. Now, the relationship is then flipped on its head, and it it jumps from the child being told to honor their parents to now fathers. It's intriguing that he doesn't address mothers. I'm not entirely sure why he doesn't do that, but that's God's business, not mine, Instead, verse 4 introduces the second of the relationships. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the key in this verse, the key really word, is provoke. There is an evil kind of parent that reads this and says, fathers, do not make your children angry. And notice how I phrased that. I said that's an evil kind of parent. That's a bad parent. Parents that are unwilling to make their children angry. Absolutely, we have to be willing to. The key in this verse is to provoke, to needlessly antagonize and crush until anger is created and drawn forth and vented in the child. In fact, that's actually the the contrast that's held of what are fathers not supposed to do. Fathers are not supposed to impose their will on the child in such a way that it's destructive and disheartening that it, again, crushes and hurts drawing forth explosions by being rough and harsh and mean. A cruel parent. Instead, parents are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction, oh yeah, again, of the Lord. This relationship, one that could easily be viewed through that lens of a a power dynamic, parents on top of children, and really that's what that provoking to anger is. It's a a father that's dominating his children and antagonizing his children, and in doing so, he's, he's driving them to rage. What's presented instead is a father who brings them up in discipline and instruction. Now both of, those keys, uh, both of those words are key to this issue, is the instruction of the Lord is that these children are being taught what is happening and why is happening. They're being instructed in what God is doing. They're being instructed in how their father is relating to them, both their heavenly Father and their earthly Father. and that when they mess up, they get disciplined. And interestingly, this is kind of where we got to go back to. Do we have to be willing to make our kids angry? Yeah, and hurt their feelings. Yeah. In fact, even the Bible says it. No discipline is pleasant in the moment. I mean, if discipline is pleasant in the moment, it's not discipline. It's reward. Right? I mean, if, if you know, we handled our children this way where every time they disobeyed, we went and took them for ice cream. It would be amazing how quickly they would learn to disobey anytime they're hungry. Right before dinner, oh, mom's making something I don't like. I'm going to go be a hellion for 15 minutes, knowing that I'm going to get the discipline of ice cream. Boy, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? No, discipline's always painful. It's always miserable. Sometimes it's more painful and more miserable than others. The difference here, again, is the heart. A parent that is provoking their child to wrath, it's a heart that is largely consumed with the parent and not consumed with God or consumed with the child. Right? It's usually, if you think about it, really the times we see it the most, it's often in insecure or angry men who cannot control themselves and crush their children instead. And the interesting thing is what the Bible is holding forth as kind of the counterpoint is to say, look, no, 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 no. You discipline your children in Christ. You discipline your children in the Lord. And as a result, it, it's designed to be an affirming thing. So that you teach them while you do it. You don't just crush them and destroy them. It's, it's a moment for instruction and improvement. It's a moment for transformation. Transformation. And renewal. I mean, kind of put in visual terms, I think it's a great practice where after the child gets spanked, the parent that spanks them holds them till they stop crying. And not holds them in like a chokehold or something, obviously, <laughs> but holds them with tenderness and affection and love. So even the child understands this is miserable. I I don't I don't like discipline. I don't I don't like what is happening. But I know that my parent loves me. And weirdly enough is even committed to drying the tears that they themselves created. It's a heart change. A change that is less about the individual, less about that selfishness, less about that impetuous anger that springs out, and more about thinking, how can I help these people see Jesus? Now, <laughs> parents in the room are already going like, well, I can't, like, I, this is why I pray for patience? Patience? Because it's so easy for this type of anger to flare up. It's so easy for this type of disrespect to flare up. It's so easy. It's so easy. Yes, amen. Glory, hallelujah. Ask for the Spirit of God to equip you. But I don't think we've even entered the hard verse yet until we really get into verse 5. Bond servants is how it translates it. It's really probably more faithfully translated as slave. Most of your English translations try to avoid that word slave because they're trying to avoid civil war baggage. It's not uh, race-based chattel slavery as our country had at one point. Um, But this is slavery. Bond, servant, slaves. Obey your earthly masters. So here again, Gives the action that is required, obedience, but then explains how and why that obedience is supposed to work. Obey your earthly masters. Uh, uh, Reading this sentence is absolutely wild. With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. That is absolutely stunning, if you think about it. I mean, the closest thing that we have today might be some unholy conglomeration of the bank that owns your mortgage, the IRS, and your boss, if they were all the same person, which is really a horrible thought. And can you imagine me standing up here in a sermon and saying, oh yeah, by the way, that person, obey them, Eh, good enough. I preach that sermon and everybody's like, right on, I can do that, right? Just up to the line and no further. But it's intriguing, that's not where he goes. He actually says, obey them with, with fear and trembling, the way that you would obey Jesus himself, Well, that's awful. I mean, that's not how I want to think about my mortgage lender slash my IRS agent slash my uh, employer, my boss. Again, there's no hint of competency here. There's no kind of qualifier of like, oh, if they're a Christian or a good man. I mean, again, think, we're talking about the person at this point in history that owns your labor. There's an ownership here. Like, oh yeah, by the way, the person that owns, now again, not your person the same way we think of today, but owns your labor. You're morally obligated to obey them the way you obey Jesus. Oh, wow. And honestly, I'm gonna be candid. If, if I were in that sh- situation and those are the shoes that I was standing in and had a preacher say that to me, even in my head, I would be like, Yeah, I'm still going to go up and toe the line and still not, like, throw myself into this. But the interesting thing is he then further clarifies. Obey with a sincere heart as you would obey Jesus himself, not by the way of eye service. Meaning, not just doing the externals that look the part. Right? Right? Not just doing it with the externals, the way that it looks the part. You've seen this in uh, various, perhaps, corporations, perhaps your own life, perhaps even interacting with your children or your spouse or whatever, where while they look at you in the face, uh, they say the right things, but you can tell the tone just isn't right at all. And then as the person turns, the eye roll is so great, the room gets dizzy, right? And like, oh, as they turn away. You yeah, they said the right things, and maybe they might have looked the part, but we all know it ain't real. It's not right. It's not real. That's not what's happening. But interestingly, he's saying, look, no, no, you obey this, this earthly master with a whole heart. The way you would even obey Jesus, not even by just acting the part with eye service, not doing it even as a people pleaser, Your target, interestingly, is not to please that person. It's not, this is shocking here, your target is not to please your boss. Your target is to please Jesus by working hard. Not with eye service, not as a people pleaser, but as slaves to Jesus. Jesus. Doing the will of God from the heart. This is, again, uh, shocking. I mean, he's making a comparison here between the person who owns your labor and the Lord Jesus who owns your entirety. You serve him with a whole heart. Even, and verse 7 just takes it even one step further. Rendering service with a good will. As to the Lord. So your attitude is even good. You you don't even get the privilege of being grumpy and cantankerous about it. Your attitude is good, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Because you're not serving your boss, you're serving Jesus, who's given you opportunity to obey through your boss. Service with a goodwill to the Lord and not to man. Knowing, and and this is again, I cannot imagine how hard it would have been to hear this. I mean, I, I really, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been. I, I have yet to meet a person that is like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm happy to be told what to do. I've never met that person. Every person I've met that ever has said that means, they say tell me what to do and I'll do it every time you do, what they mean is You tell me what to do, and I will happily do it as long as I agree. That's that's what everybody means when they say that. This idea of submission that we lean on is really submission plus agreeance. As long as I agree with you, I will happily submit. But the second I don't agree, I'm just not playing ball anymore. I'm gonna take my ball and go home. I'm gonna stop playing nice. I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna stop doing what you tell me to do. I'm gonna just stop. And the interesting thing is that here, really, he's taken away that category. It's wilder to think about that in this list These commands, in many cases, would have been things that would have been considered foolish, unwise, or potentially harmful to the slave who did it or the master's household that he was working for. Because many of these masters would not have known the Lord. And so they would have been following a morality that was a reflection of the Roman culture more than a reflection of the Bible. And this would have been devastatingly complicated. And I think it's so intriguing that he does not introduce caveats. Now, obviously, you should never sin. So that, that's kind of in the background, certainly, of all of our reading is never sin, but he, he's never, he doesn't introduce that. He's saying, look, you, you go serve the Lord with a whole heart and, in fact, actually treat your slave owners, your masters, as though they themselves are giving the opportunities to obey Jesus. And you could imagine how easy it would be to sit back and get staggeringly angry about this. Either angry at God because it's not fair or angry at our master because he's a wretched master or angry at the church because they haven't overthrown slavery yet. And it's interesting that, that Paul then adds verse 8, and I, I think this is a really helpful. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's bondservant or free. By the way, <laughs> you serve God and you do good. He rewards good deeds. He rewards good deeds. Now, this has been destroyed by a wretched version of a American theology called Uh, the prosperity gospel, which is to say he rewards us financially, and to say he he has to reward us in this life. Both of those are really wrong assumptions. Most cases, our rewards are in the life to come. The vast majority of the time, our, our rewards are not financial in any fashion, but it is intriguing that you hear what he have <laughs> in verse 8 is this idea that a slave that obeys their master with a heart that is devoted to Jesus and honors their master with the respect they would show Jesus the same kind not in the same amount that slave will be blessed beyond all comprehension In fact actually you can really even kind of go so far as to say again it's so shocking to me that if you were to talk with a slave at this point in life and say you want to you want to accumulate the blessings of God freedom is not necessary obedience is and i just it's amazing I mean, we're in a nation where we said from the very beginning, give me liberty or give me death, right? I'd, I'd rather die than be enslaved. Freedom is of the greatest importance. It is the overarching primary value. I must have freedom at all. costs. entering scriptures are like, nope, sorry, not that important. Obedience. An obedience that springs from a heart that's fully devoted to God. And I'll tell you right now, I would have really struggled with this emotional. The more complicating factor <laughs> is that in some of these situations the masters are in church with them members of the same church and haven't actually freed them yet. Wow, that's awkward, isn't it? Who can you imagine the interpersonal dynamics in that one? You get up in the morning, you have your slave fix you breakfast, you have your slave kind of help arrange your transportation. Maybe that's getting your walking sandals ready. I don't know, whatever it is. You walk to church together, and the moment you walk in the door, you're equals together. But you know the whole time that the second you walk out, that slave's responsibility to make your household uh, lunch and then to clean up and to manage the entire home because that's their job, because they own them. Ah, boy, that would have been Hard. And in verse 9, we get to see that actually put into practice. Masters, do the same. <laughs> Translation, stop. <laughs> Just stop. Stop emphasizing the power aspect of it and instead emphasize the love of Christ honoring Christ, treat them with the same kind of kindness and compassion. And because you're treating them with the same kind of kindness and compassion, you must stop threatening them. Various points in Roman history, the slaves didn't have a whole lot of rights. And so some of these threats could be followed up on in really, really nasty ways, really nasty ways. Stop your threatening, knowing that their master and your master are the same master. Can you imagine how, again, how uncomfortable it was the first time this letter was read to the church, and you got probably some slave and master sitting next to each other? Stop threatening them, knowing that your master and their master, this is the same master, the same master who's in heaven, and God does not care value-wise, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free man. Doesn't care. Now, he cares in terms of obedience. He cares in terms of love for you and watching out for his child, but in terms of who's better and who's worse, doesn't care. Doesn't care. Man, woman, slave, free, does not matter. All are one in Christ. What do we do with this? Well, I would say briefly, part of the function of, of revelation not the book of Revelation, but revelation is all special revelation in the Bible part of the function of it is to show us who God is. And in showing us who God is to then offer correctives to how we naturally think, feel, and act. It's to be that tool for gaining insight into our hearts and the human condition and offering correctives, corrections, and uh, improvements. Realistically, the natural human condition has very specific ways that it thinks about parents and children relating and very specific ways that it thinks about slaves and masters relating. And the interesting thing is that in both cases, they are not the way that God thinks about them. These verses are wonderful Because what they do is they kind of provide a little bit of a rebuke to all of us, whether we have children or not, whether we're slave or not, we're not. But it provides a little bit of a a rebuke to say, are you actively thinking about all of your relationships through the lens of this relationship is an opportunity for me to experience and give the love of Christ? Rather than me pursuing power or me pursuing my own pleasure or me pursuing my own profit, this is an opportunity for me to experience and show the love of God. Secondly, this type of relationship requires a strong commitment to understanding that God can take better care of you than any other person you know. He can take better care of you than an earthly master. He can take better care of you than an earthly parent. He can take better care of you than an earthly spouse. Really, chapters five and the first part of six, where it's really presenting all of us as being called to this Holy and in some ways almost like this complete and catastrophic submission is really a commitment that we all are having to make to say, I trust God more than I trust any of you. Therefore, I'd be willing to submit. Not because I have confidence in you, because maybe I don't, but because I have confidence in Christ, that I know he's the one who cares for me. He's the one who cares for me when a master makes mistakes. He's the one who cares for me when a parent loses their temper. He's the one who cares for me always. And the reality of the matter is is I I think this type of submission by definition is really a bit scary. And so it, it, it requires and nurtures and cultivates a trust that God can do it And lastly, so much of really the power dynamics that our current kind of cultural moment talks about is just fancy philosophical, historical, and sociological verbiage for selfishness. That really, if you look at so much of kind of the writings on relationships today, it's really about getting your needs met. or It's just about selfishness. And all of these verses are really challenging us to let all of our human relationships be dominated not by the self, but be dominated by Christ Jesus and the love that he has for us and the love he has for the other people that we interact with. And in fact, actually, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you right now, you will have a significantly more difficult time losing your temper if you have fixed in the front of your brain, this exact moment has been planned by God for me to show the love of God to this person. Right? When your child is driving you crazy and you want to wring their neck, this moment is scripted in history as an opportunity for me to showcase the love of God to this child what are they going to learn about God? Are they going to learn that He's harsh and He loses His temper like me? Are they going to learn slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgive sins, instructs, and disciplines? It's an opportunity to teach along the way. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Your Word instructive as it is, even when it does instruct in ways that perhaps make us uncomfortable. Uh, Might we be, um, by your Spirit, made more faithful at bowing the knee. Forgive us for our rebellious spirits. They are much stronger than we even realize. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.